Identity crisis is what we've been in. We continue to be here. I find it a little interesting as we began talking about this is we're kind of seeing the difference between the Church of America and the church around the world right now with what's going on over in Afghanistan. I don't know if you guys have heard some of the stories of, of different parts. It's hard to know what's all true. I kind of lean on people that are somewhat connected. I have no connections personally to Afghanistan. You might find that hard to believe, right? Because I look like I fit right in. But, um, you know, I've got friends of mine that have done missions work over in, in different parts of the regions over there. And some of the stories that are getting back to me is essentially comes down to this, is that if you were helping America in any way, they're out to kill you. If you're a Christian in any way, they're out to kill you. And if you think that that is just subject to that area, I'll tell you right now that that is not the case. Because just yesterday, day before, I'm not sure, I heard a recording of a, um, I don't know what you call a Muslim pastor, okay? So whatever that term is, a mum, I'm um, I can't keep them all straight. Whatever it is, you guys can Google it, okay? Whatever that is, up in Canada, okay? Not that far from here, eh? That was a joke. Tough crowd. All right. Anyway, so they're up there. And I have friends of mine that are pastors in Canada, but they're up there, and this is a recording that went out. It was, I don't know if they live stream it. I don't know what they do. Podcast, I have no idea. But it's a recording of him, and he was making it very clear to his congregation, again, I don't know what they call it. I'm using our terms, all right, that they are celebrating what has taken place in Afghanistan and wanted to make it very clear that the Jews and the Christians are not their friends, that they are their mortal enemy, and they are doing the Lord's work by eradicating both. Okay? Now imagine if that was going on here. What's happening, and, and Paul told me this this morning, I don't know where Paul is, but he's somewhere here. He's probably, he probably about napping. It's time for that nap, isn't it? Yep. No, he does that right there, doesn't he? No, I'm just kidding. He's, he's counting heads. I'm just giving him a hard time. He's not here to defend himself, which makes it more fun for me. So, but he was saying this morning that he had read something where they're going door to door, and if they find a Bible app on your phone, they're killing you immediately. Imagine if that was America. What would we be doing? How would the church in America respond if that type of persecution was going on right here, right now? Now, we are, you know, kind of guessing. We don't really know how it would go. But I imagine it would go like it has with most things from a moral standpoint. Is we began to water it down little by little to make it fit more so with the culture. So that way the church is not persecuted to the degree that it could be and frankly should be. Because as we've seen, as we begin to look this idea up and these concepts, is that there should be a clear line of separation between the church and the world. Now we have to be careful with these terms, because when we say the church, we think big C, that includes every denomination that's out there. And I'm going to tell you, that's not what the big church is. Calling yourself a church does not make you a church. Calling yourself a pastor does not make you a pastor. No different than Harvard. I don't know if you saw this, but they just hired a, uh, a new chaplain who was an atheist. You're going to have to help me with that one. But, you know, in the world which you can pick what gender you are and race you are, why not pick what your job is, you know? I identify as independently wealthy. I've got six-pack abs, and uh, I won the Olympics. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's how I identify. I mean, the thing is, guys, is that there should be a clear distinction between the church and the rest of the world, and there's not, at least not here. Now, the distinction is, is going on over there. Why? Because it's costing them their lives. 
They have to draw a line in the sand. They are now facing what the apostles faced. Reject what you believe, or we're going to kill you. And what the first century believers believe. They're the ones that are walking down the hall of Smyrna and saying, hey, pinch the incense, burn it, and say Caesar is Lord. And they got to decide, am I going to do that or not? And as we have found out, as time has progressed, with more and more of this stuff that's going on, what would the church do? We'd pinch it and justify it. Because we have no identity. And the reason we have no identity is because we have bought into this concept of truth not being objective. And we've done that in the church, and we don't even realize that we've done it. We have accepted the world's way of defining things without even realizing that we've done it. You know, like what Laura said, and I'm going to correct her on one thing. because she's she, It's all right, you did fine. But let me just make it a little stronger. She said that we're not moved by what we feel, and we're not moved by what we see. We're moved by what we believe, right? But that's not necessarily all of it. We're moved by what we believe if what we believe is true. If what we believe is false, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're good. You're good. I'm just making sure. I'm just doubling down. No, no, no. I'm just saying, I'm just going deeper. Because, the th- but, but the thing is, is that you say that, but that's interesting you say that. Because what does God's word say? It's not what you want it to say. It's not what you believe it to say necessarily. It in and of itself is true on its own merit. Your interpretation of it is irrelevant if it's not grounded in truth. And that's the problem. Much of the church today believes that God is real, and that's where they stop. They believe that he did miracles before, but he doesn't now, and that's where they stop. He believed that the Spirit of God moved on people then, but he doesn't now. We all use the same Bible. We have different interpretation. Who's right? That's the problem. It's what standard are we applying against it? When we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That's either true or it's not. How we get here is the part that's up for debate. Because this debated is what makes you that new creation. Right? It is coming down to, well, were you baptized? Are you a good person? Do you give money? These are all things that we have attempted to do to take place of the true transformation, which is what we just celebrated a little bit ago. It's the blood of Christ. It's not us, it's Him. And we've changed that. And we've added all these distinctions and all these parameters. And and, and just bear with me. Just last week, last week, I saw a service of a church. I'm going to leave names out of it. Where these young kids have come up through whatever uh, confirmation, something along those lines. I don't know what they actually call it. And they baptized them. And as soon as they got done baptizing, you know what they said? Welcome to the body of Christ. Scary, isn't it? Because it's not the bath that gets you. It's the transforming of your heart. It's your faith in Him. That's good, but it doesn't save you. But that's not the distinction we're making. Same Bible, different interpretation. Who's right? This is where we've got to get back to the basics. Is what does a Christian look like? And what does a Christian talk like? And, and how does a Christian act in every phase of life? A true Christian, born-again believer, a Christ-like individual, a person who is a follower of the way. Because when we take words and we muddy them down and we just water them down to the point that they're unrecognizable anymore, we don't even know what these terms mean. 
We use the term love so loosely. We all love our spouses, but it's different than the love we have for our pets. Or at least it should be. It's different than the love that we have for pizza. Or at least it should be. Most of us at one time loved Husker football, but that's over now. It's behind us. We don't need this stuff in our, in our lives anymore. I mean, my goodness, who would have ever thought that Nebraska would become Missouri? Who would have thought, right? I couldn't resist. See, but the thing is, guys, is we've taken this term, we've watered it down, and we don't know what it means because we use the same word, it's got different definitions, and it's all over the map. We don't ask ourselves the questions like, well, what does God have to say on the subject of love? We don't ask that question. But we like these sermons that really get us excited and jolted, like, yeah, that's good stuff, yeah, that's great. But the truth is, is that we're just walking around blindly, aimlessly, because we don't want the correction that comes from the proper interpretation of Scripture. Do you realize that not everything you believe is correct? Maybe shocking to some of you. You realize that not everything that we believe is probably correct? I mean, it's more correct than the other guy, but, but, but probably not 100% accurate. You know, the thing is, is that we've got to realize that how did we come to the conclusions we came to? And what do we know about this Jesus? And what do we know about how he acted? And how do we know about him? And God the Father and all of these other parts. Because the world that we live in is going the opposite direction from us, or at least they should be. And part of the problem we have today is it's not. That the church is looking more like the world today than it ever has in our lifetimes. Not the rest of the world, not the rest of generations. Because as bad as it is today, it has been worse in the past. And it's bad. And it's getting worse. We'll eventually catch up with them. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I read some of these last week. I'm going to just kind of recap some of this stuff. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Do you realize that that verse right there is on attack right now in the church today? Because he doesn't judge. Think about that. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. You notice when he says preach the word, what is he talking about? Preach the truth. He doesn't say if they like it. He doesn't say if they want to hear it. He just says preach it. When it talks about convincing and rebuking, exhorting, and with all long suffering and teaching, it means never stop no matter how they respond. You stay on the side of truth. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do you realize that that verse is on attack today? Do you know why? Because now we have the other side of the coin. Endure afflictions. Oh, we won't have afflictions. Jesus died so us to be happy and merry and life is good. That's the other side of the coin. You see the ditches that we can quickly get in? And we've read five verses, y'all. I mean, we've barely begun to scratch the surface. But he says, watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. He was telling them, these people are going to be here, and they're going to lift up these teachers that will just tell them what they want to hear back in the first century. Here we are a few years past that. And we have the same problem. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. 
It says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Simple means dumb. They're not smart, and they're easily deceived. Avoid these people. What are they doing? They're serving themselves, but what are they saying? Flattering words, words that sound good, good words that lift you up and excite you and all of these other parts. There's nothing wrong with being lifted up and excited, but the world we live in, that's all we want. Is It's all about me. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, who has written to you, as also in, his, in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scripture. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away from the, uh, with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So, what did he just say? Untaught and unstable people will twist to their own destruction the Scriptures. Right? So they're the ones that will get up and say, after a child has been baptized, say, welcome to the kingdom of God. But we like those things. We like the fact that all I had to do was be baptized. Now I can do what I want, live how I want, be who I want. Be me, be what, what God created me to be. That's the problem. We have done this, and they are leading themselves to their own destruction, as many who are following them. And that's just one example. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, we're there, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrine of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from food, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Know the what? Truth. There's a difference between the truth and what they were saying. So, how did they get here? Well, they gave heed to deceiving spirits, the doctrines of demons. That's how it starts. When we talk about the one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, that is actually referencing in John chapter 10, is referencing back to the Pharisees and what they were teaching. It was the teaching that would lead to the destruction because the teaching of the Pharisee is that is not Messiah because he doesn't fit our narrative. And only we can declare one Messiah, so your belief in him is wrong. Trust us. They were stealing, killing, and ultimately destroying Israel were they not that's when it comes is the destruction of the temple Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 I marvel that you turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ and even we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than to you than what we have preached to you let him be accursed as we have said before and so now I say again if anyone preaches any other gospel to you other than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. All of these things have been coming since the very beginning of Christ's ministry. That you had truth and you had the antithesis to the truth. And this one sounds better. In fact, this one's more convenient. And this one feels good. And this one allows me to do what I want and be what I want and all of these other parts. But the truth does not change. A conversation I had with a high school teenager one time. I was teaching in the school. We did an early morning thing. This was out in Hastings. And uh, we do this early morning thing. And we're talking to the very concept of truth. And how truth doesn't change. And your opinion of truth doesn't make it change. 
And she came back and she says, well, you know, truth does change, actually, because we make new discoveries all the time. And science will show us the truth. Well, here's the problem. The truth never changed. Our understanding of it did. The truth was always here, but this is where we were. But now we have a better understanding of it. And she's like, oh. She's like, I never thought of that. I'm like, you probably don't do a lot of thinking at your age. It's okay. You see, the church today ignores the Old Testament in favor of the new. Why? The new is grace and love and mercy. The Old Testament's got that judgmental God that's just looking to draw, drop the hammer on whoever can, uh, whoever he can, and attempting to deal with this judgmental God versus the loving one. That's too hard. That's too complex. You know what you would have to do to understand the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? It's a word that we do not like in our culture today. That is, you'd have to study it out to understand it. Because if you just pick a few verses to read here and there, and then you just go to the New Testament and read about this love and mercy and all of that, you have completely stripped the foundation of that love and mercy and all of that. The whole reason of why Jesus is here and how he got here and what he came to do is irrelevant if it's not built upon the foundation of the old. And we want to throw that out because that God doesn't make sense to me. The church today may believe in the big truths, but they've accepted the small lies. We believe in the big truth that there is one God and that Jesus came to die for the people. But basically from there on, we've accepted all these little details that are wrong. We've watched this as we walked through and we, we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and, and we looked at Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is tempted. We've looked at these different parts and you could go on and on about the deceiving that takes place. And we saw how Jesus handled and he came back with scripture. But do you ever ask the question, why did he do that? You see, Matthew chapter 4 has an interesting perspective that you could put on it. Because if you go back and look at the verses that it is referencing, that Jesus is quoting, it goes back to a time where the Israelites walking through the wilderness came against God. They sinned and they failed. Now, here's the thing. If you and I were living at that time, this is how we think. And we had watched God bring the ten plagues against the gods of Egypt, and then he brings us out, and then there's like this fire by night, and this cloud by day, and it's directing us, and then we come up to this big lake, and we don't know how we're going to get across it, but, you know, we got some people on our tail that don't like us anymore, and all of a sudden, it splits wide open, and we're going to walk through it, and after we get through, and they're following it, it's going to close, it's going to kill all of them. At that point, we have nothing else to complain or doubt God about. You would think. I mean, what more do you need to see? I think that pretty much clears up our doubts. Didn't work out so well for them. Because when they were hungry, well, God, why do you just give us this bread? Do you not understand how much we like steak? They were complaining against God. And Jesus is supernaturally, or spiritually speaking, undoing what they had done, getting it right. But he kept going back the scriptures every time he referenced the scripture how many times did he quote scripture to the pharisees or those who were coming against him it's innumerable i mean it's unbelievable he always went back to that and what did we see with paul every time he went into a new place what did he do he'd go to the synagogue and he would argue with them from the scriptures and what did he say in second corinthians chapter 5 or 15 first corinthians 15 one of the corinthians chapter 15 
He says, this is the gospel which I preached to you, that Christ died according to the scriptures, and then he was buried and resurrected according to the scriptures. He always referenced back to that. Why did he reference back to that? Because that is the standard of truth. Our knowledge about God, when you take away the foundation, is nothing more than a matter of opinion. Ask anybody today their ideas on God, whether they grew up in church or not. They have an idea of who God is or what He's done or where He is or all that other stuff. Sometimes God's a woman. Sometimes God's in nature. Sometimes God, I don't know if He exists or not. But then they believe in karma, which is so weird to me. And the idea is, I mean, if you've not seen expelled, no intelligence allowed, please do yourself a favor. Spend an hour watching this documentary done by Ben Stein. It was done, I don't know, 15 years ago. So expelled, no intelligence allowed. Richard Dawkins, and I gave you guys a quote of him, rejects the idea of God. There is no God. God didn't create anything. There is no God. That's just that. Then question on the idea of panspermia. And if you don't know what that is, let me help you. Because the problem that the uh, evolutionists have today is the concept of we understand that life changes. We don't understand how life started. We can observe this kind of animal changing to this kind of animal, although that's arbitrary because a cat's still a cat no matter what color you make it. But we don't understand how you get life from non-life. Remember, God doesn't exist. Supernatural is impossible. So here's the theory. A alien race who was more evolved than we came down and seeded life on earth. And then from there, life sprouted. What did they just bring into the argument? Intelligence. Well, I guess that could be debated. <laughs> right. But, but, I mean, that's the thing. And he says this, and it's no problem. He is perfectly content with that answer. And we're all sitting there like, you're supposed to be one of the smartest men on the planet right now? There's another guy on there, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, that says that very thing happened, but they came on the backs of crystals. You're laughing. This is science, y'all. Trust the science. This is where you get the idea that science doesn't say anything scientists do. This is the idea where we get, well, truth changed because we discovered something new. No, we had it wrong before. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present that I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they are mighty in God, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now think about this. What is coming against? It is strongholds, arguments, and high things. And what are they exalting themselves against? The knowledge of God. Who He is, what He's done. Does He exist? This is why some of the most intelligent men on the planet, and I'm using that term loosely, can reject God but believe in alien seeding life. What evidence do you have? Well, we have life here. Okay, then. 
Because they have to have something outside of this. And these arguments are coming against the knowledge of God. And we look at this and we're like, oh my gosh, that's so dumb. How can anybody believe that? But you know what? They look at us and say, oh my gosh, that's so dumb. How can you all believe that? Because dead things don't come to life, but non-life things come to life. I don't. And this is the problem. is because we have allowed our carnal minds to control the way that we see the world. We're not looking at it through a biblical lens. We're looking at it through a carnal lens. Romans 8, 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So there's a distinction. Both have to do with your mind. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the carnal mind is in a war against God. These things are coming against the knowledge of God. And where do we store knowledge? In our minds. Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? Renewing your mind. That you may do what? Prove what is good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God. How do you do it? Your mind does it. Your mind is what makes the distinction between good and evil. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that through reason of use, people have their senses exercised to discern what is good and what is evil. The problem we've got today is we no longer do this because the church has been taught to cast out your brain and just believe whatever. That's not how it works. We are built on the foundation of men's testimonies. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does your mind matter? Absolutely. One more. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So think about the good things, and what you've seen me, me being Paul, practice those things. But that's not what we do. You see, I've taught in other series about how the mind is the devil's playground, and that's where he attacks. You can see that written in the Greek. You can see how he comes. It's like he throws a ball, and he just keeps throwing it. Let's use a rock to be a better example. Throwing a rock and a rock and a rock. He throws it time and time again until he finally cracks the glass. And he can get in there and give you bad thoughts. These thoughts will come. And what are you to do? Take every thought captive. Why do we need to do that? Because Jesus said so. What happens if you don't? You get a bunch of bad ideas. You get a bunch of bad theology. And it's not just theological in nature. It is about every relationship you had. Because that enemy will come against you. And it will begin to put thoughts in your head. You know, well, my boss is making me do this. Or my mom said this. Or my sister did this. Or whatever. It will get you to start thinking bad about other people that you'll no longer trust them. And they may be the ones that are speaking truth into your life. But we don't like truth. We are just like the world. We don't like correction. We don't like truth. We live in a church today that is no longer correctable because we no longer honor God-given authority. We think we've got it on our own, in ourselves. We don't need church. We don't need people. We don't need pastors. We don't need evangelists. We just, we got this. This is about me. God and me, we're tight. We don't need anybody else. But what we've got to understand is our thought life matters inherently. What you believe to be true will impact 
the way that you behave. And the way that you behave reveals the truth that you believe. Right now in Afghanistan, people are laying down their life. Jesus said that was going to happen. We see it with the apostles. But it's like we don't really believe it here. Because we don't face it here. Our lives are not at hand. Our reputations might be. But our lives are not at hand for the faith that we hold. But theirs are. And right now they're faced with the reality of do I deny God and live? Or do I give up my life and live forever? That's where they are. Your beliefs about God and who He is will impact the way in which you expect God to respond. If you truly believe that there will never be conflict, that there will never be hard times, that you'll never have to walk through something that doesn't seem fair or doesn't make sense, or God, I'm a good person, why are you doing this to me? If you believe that, then when crisis hits, you won't know how to respond. I went through this at a time when, when my wife had her first miscarriage, or only miscarriage, but before she had Ariana, had this miscarriage, and the whole time, I was 100% confident, wait, he is the God that heals, he brings life, we've done everything right, had the job going, we had the house, we had things going, things we put in place before we decided to have children, finished school, I literally bought a dog to make my wife stop talking about children while we're going to school, it worked for like three months. And the dog was worse than the child. This dog couldn't hold his bladder eight times a night. I'm up taking this stupid dog outside. It backfired on me, but regardless. So here it is. She's having problems. Like, no, it's going to be fine. And then we get the call from the doctor that the baby was gone. She's going through. I'm like, what do you do? That is contrary to my belief system. So is my belief system wrong? Is my understanding of something here wrong? Or is it perhaps that my faith isn't where it needs to be? Because the one thing I said in that moment is like, I don't know why and I don't know how, but I know God. And I wasn't going to let it shake me. But if we're moved by our circumstances, then we will not be grounded in truth. We'll be grounded in our feelings and in our emotions and all these other parts. Now let me show you something here. Because what you believe matters. And here recently, I, I, maybe I've told you guys some of this, but I follow some atheist pages on Facebook and Twitter, and, and I've engaged with some of these people. I used to do it a lot more. I don't do it now. You know why? Because ain't nobody got time for that. Do you realize how unfruitful online social media presence can be in debating? It's hard to believe, right? But this one came across my path, and this was retweeted by somebody who once, this young man grew up in the church. He was part of a ministry team out of Omaha. I'll read this to you here in a second. It's part of ministry in Omaha. Traveled all over the country doing different parts. He prayed in tongues. He prayed for sick people. He led people to Christ. He is 100% atheist now. He's rejected the truth of that. He said, I fell for psychobabble. And this is the world he lives in now. Now, this is the thought. This is called the problem of evil. Everybody's got to deal with the problem of evil. There's evil in the world. We see it, right? This is what they tweeted. If God is supremely good, then he has the desire to eliminate evil. Is that a true statement? a true statement right if God is omnipotent meaning that he's all-powerful he has the he is able to eliminate evil is that true sure he created the entire world he can eliminate evil if God is omniscient which means he's all-knowing then he knows that evil exists and he knows how to eliminate is that a true statement absolutely is there anything he doesn't know of course not therefore if God exists and is supremely good omnipotent and omniscient then evil does not exist Interesting. But evil exists. You see it. 
So therefore, a supremely good, omnipotent, and omniscient God does not exist. This is a matter of thinking. This is called philosophy. This is how we break this down. Now, I've told you this before, and I'll say it again. If you start at a wrong place, you will end up at a wrong place. If you start with a bad idea, you'll end up with a worse outcome. Okay? You put that back up for me. Now, I'm going to show you how we break this stuff down. Because there's straw man arguments, there's ad hominem, there's all these philosophical things. But I'm going to lean on Jared for a moment. Jared, what's the first thing that jumps out at you on this that's wrong? Uh-oh. Yes, you do. If God is supremely good, then he has a desire to eliminate evil. Is that true? That's true. If God is omnipotent, he is able to eliminate evil. Also true. If God is omniscient, he knows that evil exists and he knows how to eliminate it. Therefore, if God exists and is supremely good, omnipotent and omniscient, then evil does not exist. Well, it's a false statement. But we see that evil exists. So a supremely good and omnipotent and omniscient God does not exist. That's ultimately wrong. Now, why is this wrong? Who determines what is good? Who determines what is evil? Let's think about this for a minute. Afghanistan right now. You've got two sides of the aisle. Most of America would say what's going on there, evil. How's the Taliban feel about it? Doing the Lord's work. Who's right? If there is no standard, it is simply your opinion. You guys see that? See, they're stealing from God and God's existence to apply a standard within an atheistic worldview can't exist. Because you can't have good and evil objectively. It has to simply be, I think this is wrong and therefore it is wrong. So public opinion is irrelevant to whether something is right or something is wrong. If we took a vote we would all say that what's going on right now with the Taliban is very wrong. If you took that vote in Afghanistan today, I think we'd probably lose. Because there is an objective standard. The fact that God is good and omnipotent and omniscient does not make him not exist if evil exists, because the first line here, if God is supremely good, he has a desire to eliminate evil. That's true. It doesn't ask when he's going to do that. You guys see this? Now, this is the stuff that young people are being bombarded with day in and day out. Do you wonder why there's a decline in church attendance? Because nobody wants to address these things. And nobody wants to talk about it. What do we just say? We just got to believe. Or we say things like, man, if we just had the supernatural moving like it was back in the day, they would see it and they would live it and they would know it. That can't be true. Otherwise, the Israelites, you cross the lake, no more questions. I mean... We see the whole thing with Lazarus and the rich man. He said, listen, if Moses comes back and tells him, if they won't believe his words, and one from the dead comes back, they're not going to believe him either. See, it always comes back to truth. And this is the problem. Can you imagine you and I growing up? I didn't deal with this when I was growing up, and I'm sure you all didn't, because we accepted that God existed. We had questions from there. But we accepted this is true. Now the rejection of this is where we live, and we have to go back to the point. Now, some people argue like, well, we just don't need to argue that stuff. We just got to believe in all that stuff. That 
is not a correct statement, and here's why. What did Paul do every time he went into the city? For three weeks, he argued from the scriptures in the synagogue that this was true. Because they accepted the scriptures as true. He argued from their worldview. He also argued from a worldview of about an unnamed God and told them who that unnamed God was. So this stuff needs to be dealt with. But if we don't think right, do you know how many Christians get sucked into this? I just told you about one. It's stuff like this. I have another friend of mine who was doing ministry. He was an illusionist, doing ministry for years. I'd had him in. Good for him. I mean, he's got the world record for making a Ferrari disappear. Seven seconds. Unfortunately, he didn't make it appear in my garage, but he did make it disappear, which is pretty impressive. I mean, this guy was good. And when he would go, he would preach the gospel, and he's rejected all of that now. Come out as an atheist because of stuff like this. Because we don't want to deal with any of this. We just assume be blasé. Now, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 again. I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who is in presence and lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Those are things that we just read that come against the knowledge of God. Simply who God is and that He exists, right? In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, now look at this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known about God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, let me break this down. Romans 1 is an interesting read. In fact, I think we're living in part of Romans 1 right now. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Where should we be? Godly and righteous. How do we get there? Through the blood of Christ. Only way. Okay? So, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those things. And what do they do? They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Suppression means to hold it down. Even though what they see right in front of them seems to point to this benevolent creator God, they have to suppress the truth because if it's true, it affects the way that they live. And they don't want that. How do we know that that is how it works? Well, look at the Pharisees. The truth of Jesus was right in front of them. But they suppressed it. They bribed the guards. They tried to have Lazarus killed. They did all of these things. Even though they watched it happen, there was no denying it. They chose to deny it. Let's go on. Because what may be made known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. And being understood by the things that are made... Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So does anybody have an excuse to reject God? No. One of the arguments that you hear people say, well, what about the, the, the pygmies in New Guinea that have never heard the gospel? Romans 1 settles that. It's clearly seen in the things that are unseen. Now, what does that mean? That means to reject the idea that we didn't come from nothing as some cosmic accident. It means we have to suppress the truth because we don't want it to be true. Remember the quote by Dawkins, that he's benevolent, all of these, you know, terrible things about God of the Old Testament. And it's because we don't want them to be true. We don't want standards to apply to our life. 
when we look at this, the knowledge of God, it's not just that God exists. For us as the believers, it goes deeper is what does he do? And so as we get into this, we need to understand this. There are four fundamental questions that every believer must be able to answer. And if you can't answer this, you need to do some homework. But the first one is, who is God? The second one is, who am I in relationship to him? The third one, if he's God, well, how do I worship him? How am I intended to worship him? And the fourth one is, who is my enemy? Because it's not your neighbor. It's not even the Taliban. But it's the spiritual force behind it. These are the four fundamental questions that all believers should be able to answer from Scripture. You can ask these questions, and most people will give you an answer. And what will the answer be? Based off of something I've seen, something I've experienced. I did this to you guys a while back, but I said, how many of you guys believe God heals today? Most hands go up. I said, how many of you guys believe that because of you've seen it happen? Most hands go up, and I'm like, how many of you guys believe it just simply because of Scripture? Because I think everyone in this room has seen somebody healed and somebody not healed. But we're not moved by that, we're moved by truth. The truth of Scripture is what it is. So in order to understand who is God, we're going to just introduce this idea today, but we're going to build upon this. Because we have to get this fundamental concept. is who is God and what does He have for me? Is we see the greatest personification of God in the life of Jesus. Because He is God on the earth. Came with the purpose. We have the Creator of all things hanging out in His creation. And what did we see him do? We saw him teach, preach, heal, and die and resurrect. But why? Why did we see it? Why did we see those things take place? Because that is his will. How is he going to eradicate evil from this world? Through what we just said. See, the truth is, is God is bringing everything back. Did he create it evil? No. Why is it evil? Can we answer that biblically? Because of sin. Why do people die? Death is evil wasn't God's plan because of sin why do people get sick sickness is slow death because of sin so we have the cause and what's the ultimate effect the price has been paid he's made things new and there will be a new creation you guys see how that works we can think our way through this stuff we see the purpose of him coming in Isaiah chapter 53 let's read this real quick I'm just about done I promise who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. We, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Who smitten, smitted him? Smited him? Smittened him? God did. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. What did we just do? We did remembrance of this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shear is silent, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but the rich 
and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressor, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the redeeming atonement that took place. This is prophesied in Isaiah. This is prophesied that he would die on a cross 500 years before the cross was invented. This was all laid out and it pleased the Lord to do it. This good, omnipotent, all-knowing God was pleased to put this on himself ultimately. For what? For mankind. John chapter 12, verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. You see, this is where we should be. We love our lives. We should hate it. Because right now, we are separated, so to speak, from God. We should love our lives just to the point of death. That our lives are here for a purpose. For this purpose, I came. It's the same thing that we should live our lives to be today. When we begin to get into this idea of who God is, we have to take it up to a higher level. Because we have this arbitrary opinion of God, but that opinion is not grounded necessarily in Scripture. It is grounded through experience, through books and movies, maybe through just things you came up with out of the air. But when you understand who God is, your relationship with Him will go to a deeper level. Your understanding of Him will go to a higher level, and your walk with Him will go to a deeper place. Because we don't serve a God that forces us to destroy the lives around us. For this purpose, He came. For that purpose, we live. We have work to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is true. And I thank you, Lord, as we continue in here, that you're opening our eyes and our hearts to understand the truth of it, of who you are and who you've made us to be. That we can understand our relationship with you is not based on merit, but based on your justifying us and making us whole. That we are set apart because you have set us apart. That we are holy because you have made us holy. That we are redeemed because you have made us redeemed. And that we'll walk in the truth of that. And, Lord, that our actions will not only go up and the goodness of who you are, but they will justify the words that we speak. They will not say things with one side of our mouth, and our actions speak the opposite. Lord, I thank you that in everything that you be glorified in every aspect of our life, that our lives are truly devoted to you, and that in all things, Lord, that we live our lives to show the world your love, mercy, and compassion, that you be glorified in everything we say and do. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you.